Radio Mano Papachango. Hi, Chris and the whole tangentially speaking community. This is uh, Mike, uh, also known as uh, Ride Farm Swing on the Reddit, uh, the subreddit of tangentially speaking. I'm calling in from a beautiful piece of land just south of Nanaimo, BC on Vancouver Island, Canada. What can only be described as the nicest part of Canada in uh, an area in transition. Uh, where I'm standing at one point was beautiful, pristine land owned by or, or occupied by the First Nations, and then it was taken over and logged in the 1800s and then turned into a gravel pit in the 1980s. And then, after the gravel was fully extracted, the area started to regrow naturally with first series succession plants of cottonwood trees. And then I took it over, and now I've been building it with my partner into a uh, a lifeboat that we really hope to continue helping the community with. Uh, I was commenting on how I was a little remiss that I, I wouldn't be able to fit in doing our orchard expansion this year due to other financial constraints and, and Chris said and generously offered to help purchase the trees for the expansion which was just the wildest thing that's happened to me on the internet in all my life which uh, as an early or a late late vintage millennial, it's been a while. So, but yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing. Chris and all of the tangentially speaking community members who are donating to the podcast are are helping uh, build an orchard on this land, and uh, I'm ever thankful for it. We always give away almost all of our produce that we don't use ourselves. Uh, the whole factor of being a business just really isn't in our whole way of life. So I just wanted to say thank you. And this podcast has inspired me. And the Reddit community uh, that the podcast brings about is some of the most interesting conversations where... It is such a rare thing to have somebody get upset and go off the rails and everybody just uh, intelligently discusses things and it's a wonderful place. But much like Wallace J. Nichols said in the podcast, episode 325, you need to find your place and spend the rest of your days making it perfect. That's what I'm doing here. And uh, the community's helping, so thank you. If you're on Vancouver Island... Swing on by, look me up on Reddit. I'll certainly hook you up some delicious, delicious produce. And in a few years, the fruit of these trees will always be available to you. Thank you all. All the best. Bye now. All right, there you go. I told you I was looking to involve this community and your generosity in uh, spreading that shit around. So we spread it around to uh, get some trees planted now rather than having to wait for the spring. Um, and uh, those of you who are on Vancouver Island, I would encourage you to go check out Stony Fields Farm near Nanaimo. Um, 
you know, make sure it's real. <laughs> I know it's real. I trust that guy. Anyway, uh, thank you for your generosity. If you've sent me money, some of it just went to that guy to buy uh, a bunch of trees. So there you go. Uh, this episode is with Krista Seidel. Seidel or Seidel? I forget how she pronounces it, but she's German and it's S-E-I-D-L, so it must be Seidel. Anyway, I met her in Santa Cruz uh, when I was cruising through there, cruising. The brain makes puns without us even consciously choosing it. It's a strange thing about the human brain. But anyway, I was in Santa Cruz and we had um, a get-together for fans or listeners of uh, Kyle and Anya and me and um, of this podcast and and a bunch of people showed up. It was awesome. And I ended up chatting with Krista and she, the thing that really piqued my curiosity was she mentioned that she had been in Madagascar doing research. And I know very few people who have been to Madagascar. Um, man, I've spent so much time traveling, so much time hanging out with travelers, and I can think of two people who have been to Madagascar. One was a German dude in Pokhara, Nepal, who I met in 1989, maybe. He taught me how to juggle, and he had ridden a motorcycle from Germany to Nepal, a BMW Boxer, I remember. Um, interesting guy. And he told me these stories about having hiked across the island of Madagascar by himself, uh, up over the mountain chain that sort of runs down the spine of the island. Um, yeah, and that's it. Him and Krista, who you're about to hear. Really smart woman. She's uh, a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz studying Um, species that are in danger of going extinct. And uh, as you'll hear, she's extremely knowledgeable about bacteria and viruses and uh, ecosystems. And I guess she's studying specifically the Hawaiian honey sucker or something like that. Um, But, you know, it's, it's not a conversation that is highly academic. It's very educational, um, but she's a very talented science communicator. uh, So, don't be intimidated if you're not a scientist. Uh, it doesn't matter. I'm an idiot, and she's really good at communicating complex, interesting ideas in a relatively simple way. Brief update on what's going on here. I'm in Crestone, leaving in a couple of days. Gonna um, head uh, back to LA, stop and see some folks on the way. But basically, Head to L.A. and around the end of August, fly down to Guatemala. That's the plan. It changes constantly. I mean, this plan just emerged a couple days ago. Uh, We were thinking of going to Guatemala in November, but now it's like, you know, we were cruising around in the van. It's like, okay, let's extend the van trip another couple of months. It's going to be awesome. We can watch the Aspens change in Colorado. We can go to Utah when it cools down a bit and camp in the Red Rocks and it's all awesome. It's it's fantastic. But uh, we're both feeling like we got work to do. Um, and it's a strange feeling for me. I don't have it very often, but I am feeling like I want to get some writing done. So 
the plan is to go to Antigua, Guatemala and rent a, a house somewhere, a little, a little bungalow or whatever we find and um, get some writing done. So that's the plan. Uh, I'll come back in early November to speak at the Meet Delic conference in Vegas. So if you are in Vegas for some reason, uh, you should come to that. It's hard for me to encourage people to go to Vegas because Vegas is everything I hate about the world, the modern world, uh, just sort of compressed into one horrid shopping mall, Disney World bullshit, wasteful cruise ship in the fucking desert. But if you disagree with me and you love Vegas, you should come check out the Meet Della conference. Uh, I think it's November 6th and 7th, whatever that weekend is up there. So I'll be coming back to speak at that be a lot of interesting folks there. Uh, Duncan Trussell's going to be there. Carl Hart is going to be there. Aubrey Marcus. Um, check out the website. It, all kinds of interesting people ranging from researchers to uh, business people trying to capitalize on the wave of psychedelic acceptance and legalization um, to various commenters and dipshits like yours truly. So that's happening in early November. And then I don't know what's happening after that. Maybe Baja. I've never been to Baja. So maybe jump in the van and drive down to Baja. Anyone who's got advice or contacts or any tips, uh, drop me a line. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. As always, uh, reminder, YouTube site is up. Chris Ryan on YouTube. It's a channel. Go there. Subscribe. Click the thumbs up. I don't know. Whatever happens on YouTube. This is all new to me. Mike Marr uh, is uh, setting it all up and he's doing a great job. He's into the archives now. He just posted some of the uh, Shrimp Parade episodes that I recorded with Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell back in the day um, and other uh, sort of selected episodes from the archives. We're pushing 500 fucking episodes at this point, people. Holy Shit, I've been doing this a long time. Thank you. Especially those of you who've been along for the whole ride. It's like nine years at this point. It's like we've grown up together. Or grown old together. <laughs> depending, depending how old you were when we started, right? All right. I really love doing this. And I thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to play you out with a song that has nothing at all to do with this episode, or the subject matter, or the guest. You know, I try to find things that have some kind of clever connection, but in this case, I, I was just driving in the van the other day, and I heard this song, and I thought, I should play that song on the podcast. It's fucking cool. It's an interesting, funky, weird song. Uh, the song is called Naganga Kisi. No idea what that means. And it's by uh, Ricardo Lemvo. And Machina Loca. So you hear some of it's in some African language, some of it's in Spanish, some of it's in English. It's a highly international piece of music. I hope you enjoy it. This is another commercial-free episode. If you like those commercial-free episodes, how many other podcasts do you listen to that have no commercials? I'm guessing it's pretty few. So if you want 
to support that approach to business, a totally self-destructive, stupid, short-sighted, blind approach to business. Send me some money. You know how to do it. Thanks for listening. Here's Makina Loca and Ricardo Lemvo. Kisi biki sangai, hello? Me tienes loco
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here in beautiful Santa Cruz, California with Krista Seidel, whom I just met two nights ago at our Mm -hmm. get-together. And you came to the get-together because you listen to Kyle's podcast, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you're not even like my fan. Sorry. I'm I'm stealing one of (laughs) Kyle's fans for the podcast. Uh, You said something, we, we talked for quite a while the other night, and there were several things you said that piqued my interest. One was... Your research into and in, so I you said endangered species, but mm-hmm. what specifically about endangered species are you looking at? Yeah, so right now I study the Hawaiian honey creepers. Um, it's an radiation of finches that are found only on the Hawaiian Islands, and uh, I'm a PhD student at UCSC, University of California, Santa Cruz. Go, what are they, slogs or something? What's slugs. It? Slugs. Yeah, banana slugs. slugs. Banana slugs, right. Yeah. And specifically, my PhD is in disease ecology. And that is the study of the ecological interactions of diseases. Um, those diseases can either be uh, what we're now too painfully aware of, zoonotic diseases, diseases that spread from animals into humans, or specifically in my case with avian malaria, um, that's again a type of malaria. Doesn't get into people, but it infects hundreds of bird species across the world. And it was not in Hawaii until recently, so we think sometime in the early 20th century, and it's caused massive bird extinctions hmm. in the Hawaiian Islands. And is it spread by mosquitoes? It is. Yep. So similar to human malaria, uh, it's spread by um, uh, a mosquito that also was introduced to the Hawaiian Islands in the like 1820s. We think we know exactly the ship that really? caught it. Because it came from Africa or something? It actually came from Mexico. Oh, from Mexico. Yeah. Uh, they, it came on a Spanish ship. Um, and the story goes they were dumping water, like bilge water and water that they had collected in, right. in Baja or along the Mexican coast. Right. And Hawaii was a very popular whaling uh, stopover for a lot of ships. Yeah. So they came there, dumped out some containers in bilge water full of mosquito larvae, and that's how um, Culix quinquefaciatus, the southern house mosquito, was brought to Hawaii. And so that came again in the... 1820s, avian malaria was then introduced. We're not really sure how, um, but along with another disease, avian pox, it's it's pretty much created an extinction crisis for these Hawaiian birds, and they've already lost. Um, oh man, I should. This should be edited, and I should definitely know like exactly <laughs> the number of species. <laughs> Don't worry about um, it. I, yeah, it was, you know, at this point they've lost at least 30 species. Um, and Not so, just of finches, of, of all sorts of birds. Of, oh, if we want to talk about that, that's like, that's a whole addition onto that. So avian malaria has, yeah. has caused at least 
tens of species to go extinct and is currently threatening. So this is the whole endangered species full circle. It's currently threatening the remaining finches okay. with extinction. And right. their numbers are crashing precipitously fast. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so historically, if we want to ask about extinction in the Hawaiian Islands and endangered species, um, Hawaii has some of the highest levels of endemism. So that means um, species that are specifically evolved to be in a, in a given location. Right. And so be it plants, insects, birds, like the things that are the biology in Hawaii is um, incredibly unique. And, and not just disease, which is what I focus on, but uh, invasive species, human land use change. Um, yeah. We should start this. Uh, we can go all the way back to the introduction of the Polynesians. Right. So Polynesian wayfaring people who came on canoes and found the Hawaiian Islands, um, you know, they uh, started also a, a series of extinctions. Um, but the worst ones are usually associated with Western colonization of the islands, usually because they brought um, rats, mongoose, cats, and then subsequently mosquitoes and disease, and that's really taken a toll. Is is the specific pathogen the same malarial? Is it pa- what is malaria? Is it a bacteria or a bacterium? Oh, or? Good, yeah, good question. It's not a bacteria. Uh, it is a single-celled organism. Hmm. And so they have this really complex life cycle um, where they have various life stages in different creatures. And so, yeah, I think think of more what helps people envision what a single-celled organism looks like is an amoeba. So it can live on its its own in the sense that it's not a virus. It it actually has organelles. it goes through Cell cellular processes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Um, what makes malaria, both human and wildlife malaria, very hard to um, control from our perspective is that it goes through life stages um, in different species. And right. so in you, for example, it'll have a certain life stage. And then when a mosquito bites you and is the um, plasmodium is taken up into the mosquito's gut, it then actually goes through different a different set of life stages in the mm. mosquito, and it needs the mosquito. Yeah. So is it? It's reproducing in the animal in the bloodstream of the animal. Ooh, if we want to get real specific, it does actually. It has um, sexual reproduction in the mosquito, but not in the human or vertebrate host. Okay. So it just kind of so just replicates, replicates, clones itself inside of you. Right. Um, they're all for the most part copies identical copies of them of the pathogen in you so the single cell is just splitting into identical clones yeah 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 yeah. kind of virus like in that that Mm self-replication in the environment that's necessary Mm -hmm. right and then it reproduces so so what's the difference between splitting into clones and you said sexual reproduction? Mm. So are there male and female cells? What, yeah. What are we What are we calling them? Single-celled organisms. Um, well, so we we would call there's a life stage called the gametocyte. Okay. Which is kind of equivalent to our sperm and egg cells. Right, gametes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so um, again, in the vertebrate host, uh, let's say you or I or the bird. 
Um, it's usually cloning itself to a high level, let's say, um, infections in birds, for example, that are really deadly. It can be 30% of a blood sample. Um, the wind is opening your front door. <laughs> People can't can't see that. Do you want to close that? Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll pause. We'll pause the discussion of uh, of these amazing <laughs> organisms. So this is, this is a... <laughs> you weren't expecting to get this technical this fast. Right <laughs> Let's dive right the fuck into it. Yeah. No, I'm interested in this stuff. Cool. Like, yeah. like I didn't know that there was sexual reproduction among single-celled organisms. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, they they still have DNA. So, um, you know, the uh, I guess yeah. So it's a uh, um, a double helix as opposed to I think just recently we focused a lot on viral replication and um, with COVID. Right. But um, which is is that RNA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's RNA. And, and viruses, if I understand correctly, are kind of like not, they're not alive in the sense that they don't f- need photosynthesis or they don't extract energy from the environment in any sense. Yeah, yeah. We, we term them, and also they don't have um, cellular organs really. They don't um, respirate or, right. as you said, photosynthesize. They can't live on their own. I think that's one of the key determinants and um yeah so they if they don't have um a host to replicate in they usually can't survive and can't proliferate so weird (laughs) right like even using the word survive for something like that like what does that even mean it's like a collection of of molecules Mm -hmm. that replicates in certain environments Mm -hmm. and do they seek environment do they they don't move right like a virus can't like direct itself it's nope. not flying it's just floating on currents yeah, it's or whatever dependent on the environment around it so it's all just a numbers game they just yeah. replicate so many trillions of mm-hmm. copies that some are somehow going to arrive in the desired environment and replicate yeah it's 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 almost like like these nano machines that they're <laughs> developing. It, mm-hmm. So much of going forward seems to be moving like toward the source in a way. I don't know if that mm. makes sense. You know what I mean? Um, bi- like biomimicry, a lot of what. Biomimicry, that's the word. The, yeah. Is that like a hot word right now in certain yeah. circles? Um, but yeah, it feels very much like we're just looking back to nature to inspire progress moving forward. Which is. Yeah, we do that a lot, um, and then we do, and then we take the, th- we sort of do a parallel thing where whatever the machine model of the age is, we then apply that paradigm when thinking about nature. So, like for example, with the brain, you know, mm-hmm. oh, your brain's just a computer, and mm-hmm. you're, you know, women are wired this way, and men are wired that way, or they even say hardwired, and well, that's a hardware issue, not a software issue, right? Culture mm-hmm. software, it's all, and then we lose sight of the fact that it's all just a metaphor, and mm-hmm. we got lost in that. I mean, it used to be that the brain was like a steam engine, you know, <laughs> like in the 1800s. Anyway, we're getting off track here. Uh, yeah, I, did we finish about no. uh, like sexual reproduction and single cell oh, organisms? Oh, never finished that. It's <laughs> I'm sure so we hot. So hot. Uh, so hot. Yeah. I love watching that. 
<laughs> it's so unexciting if if we're just talking about viewing the physical act. So there will be two cells essentially produced in you, a uh, gamete cell that's male and a gamete cell that's female. And a mosquito, when it bites you, uh, luckily will take up some of the, like either some combination of those cells. And then in the mosquito, they meet, get together, Mm -hmm. you know, create a fertilized zygote, essentially. It's called an oocyst. And that buries into the stomach lining of a mosquito. And then... uh, weirdly very similar to pregnancy, uh, and then differentiates. And these new cells then arise that are um, called um, sporozoites. And those then find a way to get through the mosquito, migrating through its various bodily organs up into the salivary glands. And then that mosquito becomes infectious because its salivary glands are filled with these sporozoites. When it bites you, or a bird in my case, um, those sporozoites then invade the skin and eventually the blood cells, and they start the whole process over again. You know, I, uh, in some circles, people might think I'm an expert on evolution because I wrote a book about, you know, sort of evolution of sexuality, but I have to admit I don't really understand evolution very well. <laughs> you didn't I mean, get a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology? I did not, no. I have a degree in psychology mm-hmm. and just barely that. Um, but I often run across things when thinking about evolution that don't make sense to me. And I'm aware of the fact that they may not make sense to me because my understanding is fragmentary. Mm-hmm. Um but I can't help feeling like there is, you know, there are things that you're not supposed to say in scientific worlds because mm-hmm. it gives support to the anti-science people. Mm-hmm. And I, there are a couple of them in my head that I'm always aware of. And one of them is this, that I feel like there are things that evolution, at least Darwinian evolution as I understand it, cannot explain and there seems to be something missing from this grand synthesis of, you know, Mendelian understanding of, of genomics and, and Darwinian understanding of uh, natural and sexual repro- um, uh, selection. And one of them is this, like, how does, how does an organism, a single-celled organism, this simple little squirming thing that we can't even see, how does it evolve to have these to to need these different environments that extend into different animals require the interaction of these different organisms within a specific <laughs> ecosystem and it evolves some sort of ability to pass through the different organs of the mosquito that you're mm-hmm. explaining, will mm-hmm. plant itself in the salivary glands of the mosquito and do the whole process over. And it, like how I don't understand how that evolves. I mean, that's like a, a more complex example of something like the wing, right? It's a big mystery. Like how mm-hmm. how did animals evolve wings? Because there's no intermediary stage between flying and not flying. 
And so the theory, as I understand it, you're probably much more up to date than this than I am. But the sort of leading theory is wings were like um, they evolved as temperature regulators. So when the animal put its wings out, it would cool down really quickly because the tissues got lots of vascularization. And then you put the wings in and you stay warmer. Mm-hmm. But I don't see how you go from that to hollow bones and aerodynamic shapes and all this stuff that's necessary to become a flying bird. <laughs> and I'm not saying God did it. I'm just mm-hmm. saying there to me there's something seems to be missing in the process. Does it look that way to you or do you see the intermediary, intermediary steps all sort of one leads to the other and you can see how that river cut its own channel. Yeah, I think when people, especially those of us who aren't trained for many years in evolutionary biology and thinking in terms of what traits maximize fitness, that kind of language, um, we often want to see sort of this line of direct, um, uh, like, correlation or causation right we want to see that like we have all the the parts of the wing lining up in evolutionary history we've got all of the um, missing organisms that would explain why this thing came to be and we also want there to be some sort of like again intelligent design or reason to it that makes sense to our human brains and how we view the world Hmm. where in fact evolution doesn't really have necessarily a Um, a directed motivation other than the traits and the things we observe are generally um, something that has benefited the reproductive reproduction of that organism or that DNA and it allows it to persist better than if it didn't have that. Sometimes it's literally just a random mutation that happens that makes that creature better at something. And then that will persist in the population so long as it allows that creature to, you know, let's say, find more food, be more attractive to mates. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the bird kingdom, for example, yeah, that is such an amazing um, um, example of color and shapes and oh, like the bower bird yeah. doing the dance and building the thing but see that again i feel like that's an that's an explanation that falls a little bit short for me because mm-hmm. you know i'm familiar with sexual selection obviously okay mm-hmm. the female prefers the brightly colored male mm-hmm. or the male that can do this dance or has the big tail blah 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 why does the female <laughs> prefer the the finch that's got that little yellow spot on its cheek over the finch that does? Are we are we attributing to female finches? Or this is an example. I don't know what yeah. I'm talking about. But are we attributing to these females an aesthetic sensibility, and it happens to be relatively consistent across all females in that species? Why don't some females say? I like the red males better than the blue males. What you know what I mean? Like how does it converge? It seems like it seems like there's some X factor in these narratives. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't mean they're wrong. I'm not saying, you know, Darwin was yeah. wrong. I'm just saying I feel like there's more to it that we haven't quite figured out yet. And we're talking around it by saying, "Oh, it's female choice." Well, really? 
how are females making those choices? What are those choices based on? Like with a peacock's tail, mm-hmm. the, the explanation is, okay, the male peacock that has the biggest tail, I forget the name for this theory, but it's like, he must be super fit because even with that big tail, he gets away from predators mm-hmm. at least long enough to reproduce a few times. But why wouldn't a female prefer a male with a smaller tail who gets away from predators more consistently? Why do fe- why are females attracted to those displays? Well, maybe think of it this way is well, and this is what one of the hypotheses. He has this big beautiful tail and he can get away from predators. I mean, that is could be seen as not only is uh, is this male able to get enough food to create the colors and maintain this large, beautiful tail? But also, if he's still alive at this point, chances are he has additionally been able to evade disease, um, evade uh, tiger predation, et cetera, et cetera, when we're talking about peacocks. And so the female might want then, or again, this is hard because we, we don't actually know what female peacocks want. We're not or inside humans. their brain or humans. But so the idea would be, oh, his genes must be so good. Yeah. And that I would like similar genes in my offspring. If Why I'm would... going to ha- have male offspring, right. I want them not only to be beautiful, but also good at evading predators. Okay. We're attributing cognition, by the way, in yeah. in... In addition to uh, an aesthetic sensibility mm-hmm. to female peahens, mm-hmm. um, but also, why would you want your male offspring to be so obvious to predators? Wouldn't you want your sons, your little pea sons, to be less obvious to predators? I think you're focusing so much so on the predators when the focus should really be on uh, the reproductive potential of spreading certain genes. And so again, we're saying because all the little girls who are growing up with my little boy are going to be attracted to these tails, he's going to get laid more. It's more, maybe more similar to that. <laughs> yeah, so it's all about how can I maximize right. the spread of my genes through a population. And if right. I, it's called the sexy sons. Hypothesis. Yeah, the sexy sons. If I create sons. Yeah. other sexy sons that I know will be attractive to females, then you know you're spreading your DNA uh, right. prolifically through right. the population. Right. All right. Well, the tigers are. I just still like think one there's more to the it. <laughs> yeah, tigers are a bump in the road. That's for sure. Um, okay, so uh, we were talking about. Oh, I had another question about malaria. Well, sure. Yeah. The, the greatest thing about this podcast is I get to talk to people who really know things and <laughs> and like educate myself about this at your expense. Yeah, Hope I you know. Don't I mind. wish I really knew more of those evolutionary biology uh, explanations. You should um, you should interview controversial guy, but still has a quite a lot of thoughts about um, beauty, for example. And it's Richard Prum has recently um, come out with a number of books um, mm-hmm. about. In birds, um, maybe females just have an aesthetic sensibility, and it has That's nothing to do right. with uh, good, uh, sexy genes, yeah. sexy sons. It might just literally be that the females are interested in a certain aesthetic. And so um, yeah. without going too deep into that, because there are um, proponents on either side sure. of um, that sort of argument that he makes, um, it's a uh, interesting 
he would be an interesting guy to. Uh, Is he at UCSC? He's not. He's, I believe, at Duke University. Yeah, right. Um, I just had a guy on the podcast from Duke, so mm-hmm. I'm, I could probably get in touch with him. Brian Hare. Do you know him? Mm-hmm. He's a evolutionary biologist. And he and I went around the, around this question a few times. Um, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you're not the first victim of my ignorance. Uh, but what I wanted to ask you was, you, you talked about uh, malaria, human and, uh, I don't know if you said non-human malaria or animal malaria. Yeah, there's malaria. hundreds of species of malaria. Uh, that's what I wanted to know. I thought, yeah. it, were there only two? Is it human and non-human? Or it's, each species has mm-hmm. a malaria? So this evolutionary weirdness mm-hmm. has happened hundreds of times. Yeah, I mean, uh, malaria and mosquitoes arose uh, kind of around the time of the dinosaurs. So mosquitoes have been around for millions of years. and um, Fuck mosquitoes. Yeah, and same, malaria has now been around for millions of years. So that evolutionary relationship has been developing for quite some time. Right. Um, yeah. So again, I agree. It is very interesting that 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 the level of complexity it um, has taken on uh, persists to this day. And and the thing that that confuses me is that that level of complexity was necessary from the beginning. There was no like, in other words. There's no, like, okay, there's an organism that, you know, replicates in the bloodstream of one animal, gets into the, the gut of the the uh, mosquito, which we can see how that step would happen, mm-hmm. right? And then, like, ends there. It can't end there. It has to do all this other stuff to get into the salivary glands to re- to continue mm-hmm. the cycle. So how did it... How did it like make five different leaps <laughs> simultaneously? It's like toxoplasmosis. Like, mm. you know, it gets in there, it gets into the brain, it tells the mouse to go hang out near the cats because it needs to be in the digestive system of the cat to reproduce and it makes the mouse think it's attracted to the smell of cat piss like all these <laughs> complex things are happening. Yeah. And they're all necessary. Yeah, well with malaria it probably didn't arise as needing both mosquitoes and the vertebrate host at the same time. It probably arose in one or the other, mm-hmm. and then adding that second mode of transmission or that second host increased the likelihood that it would become transmitted, and it, and I think importantly that it would encounter different strains and allow for outcrossing or diversity in Mm. the um, sexual recombination that happens right so um that if it let's say developed originally in dinosaurs this um apicomplexin parasite again malaria and um needed to get from dinosaur to dinosaur especially that it's a blood pathogen yeah how many times is a dinosaur bleeding on another dinosaur and also getting into the bloodstream. And then given that I said, uh, usually within a, a vertebrate host, it's just making clonal copies of itself. Like a virus, it's getting into your red blood cells and using the cellular machinery of your red blood cells to replicate itself. Mm. So it gets into your red blood cells, kind of uses molecules in there to reproduce, and then bursts your red blood cells. And so, you know, people who are really sick with malaria, often have 
really anemic blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so if it wants to get to another host, and now suddenly there are these biting um, arthropods in the world, so let's mosquitoes arise, or it's not just mosquitoes. Mosquitoes transfer malaria, but it, you know if we're just talking about a blood-borne pathogen that's vectored, um, you could have biting midges. You can have all these other arthropods potentially. Right. And so if you can get into one of those, you can easily get to another blooded animal. It's like mm. blood-to-blood contact without needing these rare, these otherwise comparatively rare events where right. um, you would uh, have to transmit somehow between two uh, species. And so, um, yeah, I think it probably started as a one-sided relationship and then took advantage of this second interaction. And that second interaction was so successful that it allowed mm. for the evolution of, of um, specific life cycles in one or the other host. Mm. Right. And mosquitoes potentially bite ma- many individuals. So they'll bite multiple humans, bite multiple birds. And um, they will take, depending on the species of mosquito, sometimes up to three blood meals in their, in their lifetime. Uh, How long do they live? It's like 24 hours? Oh, my goodness, no. Mosquitoes depends on the species um, and the environment they were raised in. Um, But they can live in the lab. I've had mosquitoes live for 90 days or longer. Oh, I thought they had very brief life cycles. No. um, Well, you know, let's say in in Central Africa, um, like an Anopheles mosquito, which... Um, transmits uh, human malaria, they might become, um, they might develop within a few days and then only live realistically, depending on environmental conditions, for six days. But um, they usually live longer than 24 hours anyway. Mm. And then, again, depending on the habitat, um, predation by other arthropods, they dry out a lot if they don't find safe, cool places to mm. uh to live or if they just don't get any meals if they don't yeah. get a blood meal for the females uh, male mosquitoes they're often only alive for like a couple days again depends on the species but you know they're really their own their only uh, um, goal is to find females and reproduce with them some some male mosquitoes have been found to pollinate plants and so they mm. they might have an ecological role and mm. um, po- pollinating flowers but. sometimes when I'm camping Mm -hmm. I'll pull up to a place in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and there are just millions of mosquitoes everywhere all over me. And I'm thinking, (laughs) what, what was their plan B? Like what, what, what are they looking for out here? I mean, if, unless some idiot camper like me shows up, what are they going to bite? I mean... A squirrel? What are they looking for? They're they're so. It seems to me, from my perspective, so little, such a small chance that they're going to find blood in the middle of the woods on a Wednesday. Mm. But is it is it just a numbers game where they're just like, okay, what is it? R and N reproduction, <laughs> right? So we're just going to R and K. R and K. So we're just going to produce so many mosquitoes and maybe only one or two percent will successfully reproduce but that's enough 
Mm-hmm. Is it that? Or is there well, stuff out there that they're eating that I don't, I'm not aware of? Like you said, I didn't I know mosquitoes bit I mean, birds. Yeah, they bite birds. They through bite. the feathers. That's strange. Um, not always through the feathers. Feathers are actually pretty good at keeping um, mosquitoes away from, let's say, the breast. But um, they often, birds often get bit around the face, near oh. their eyes, oh. um, on the legs, because um, their legs don't have feathers. And that's actually one of the things, if we go back to the Hawaiian birds that I study, that made them particularly susceptible to avian malaria and it, and biting mosquitoes was um, the comparison between, let's say, a mainland bird species, a uh, cardinal, a northern cardinal, or um, house finches we've got around here. They have behavioral adaptations at night that they sleep covering their feet ah. and tucking their faces. Ah. And at least in early studies of Hawaiian birds, they didn't have those same sleeping patterns because they didn't have biting mosquitoes at night. So right. there was no reason to sleep in that sort of um, covering of these vulnerable kind of exposed skin body parts because there was not a arthropod biting them at night. So Has anyone tried introducing behavioral changes like that you know what i mean like Mm. take a bunch of these finches and house them with you know cardinals or something Mm -hmm. so they observe this sleeping behavior in the cardinals and start to replicate it behaviorally and then reintroduce them to the (laughs) you know what i mean i know that's been done with primates a little bit um i wonder if it's probably very tedious and i don't know how you train birds or if they mimic yeah, the behavior of other birds. De- well, that definitely depends on the species, and then um, also just whether, depending on what stage in life they're at, if they're still able to learn behaviors like that, and then. Um, You're saying you can't teach an old bird new tricks. <laughs> I think maybe. Uh, hmm. <laughs> the right, what would be the right response to that? I mean, certain <laughs> birds are definitely more cognizant if we want to think about their ability to learn let's say like song and mimicry etc and some aren't yeah some just kind of go through a a more predictable evolutionary trajectory not everyone can be a covid or covid no that's not the word uh what what are crows and uh um a Corvid? Corvid. Corvid. Right? <laughs> yeah. They're the smartest ones, right? Yeah, or parrots, for example. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it would be that's a thought. I'm not, I, uh, if you want to do those experiments and see. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to school. I'm going to be a finch yeah, trainer. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. And then to get that, let's say, like cultural learning to then spread that through a population, that's got its own challenges just because yeah. one or two birds learns did they yeah. teach that to the rest of the birds then or, you might or have... is their reproductive potential so much higher that it spreads through natural selection right because that's how it starts yeah. right i mean there's no other reason that birds would you know sleep sitting down on their legs and tucking their face some yeah, whichever one, one's sometime figured it out and the rest are like good idea yeah so it, uh, yeah either was like the one that slept uh with its parts covered survived longer and so if the basis for those behaviors was genetic it got um, inherited right. by its subsequent offspring or it's a mimetic right like like a meme that spread yep. through the population yep, somehow. Yep. yeah 
Yeah, yeah. or it's a learned behavior in species that are, as we just talked about, yeah. able to learn and respond. All right, so let's let's uh, back up. <laughs> Why are you studying this? What's your fascination? Um, what did you study in high school? Oh. Where'd you grow up? I am originally from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah, I grew up um, in the suburbs of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I, uh, my family's German, my mom's from Germany, and I always had this strong sense of wanting to be uh, bigger than Wisconsin, let's say. I wanted to get out of my small hometown and explore and see the world, and growing up, I, I really thought I had two decisions in life that I wanted, uh, of what I wanted to be. It was either going to be a professional athlete <laughs> Or a um, or a veterinarian. So I really liked animals growing up. Did you grow up on a farm or something around animals? Um, I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, my what was I going to say? I guess my my grandparents had a farm, but um, I I was like I had, uh, some some of your listeners probably went through this phase of really loving zoo books. They don't really have these anymore, but it was a magazine mm. um, that came out. And it just was awesome. Had tons of cool animal facts. I think we have different ways that our like personality and um, our personality and like mental capacities manifest. And mine was very much like animal girl. Mm. I could tell you for a while if you could name any species of animal, I could tell you where in the world it was found and some mm. fact about it. Mm. Um, and yeah, for some reason I just focused in on that. We did have some pets growing up and for a while my dad (laughs) would, uh, he would joke, but he would take us frequently to the pet store as like the poor man's zoo. Mm. (laughs) So I had a, uh, like very strong under, uh, fascination with, uh, pet animals as well and wanted to keep. Um, tree frogs and uh, anoles and pretty much anything that was weird I wanted to have as a pet. Hmm. And um, and then the other s- side of that token was um, the p- professional athlete, which those hopes were dashed quickly. Um, I'm a, I was a ski racer for a long time in um, high school and college. And uh, But when you grow up in the Midwest, very few people become Lindsey Vaughn. Right. Um, and so, yeah, cross country ski racing? <laughs> no, downhill ski yeah. racing. But yeah, yeah, actually, I should have gone the cross country route. Right. That would have been a. No big mountains in Wisconsin, are there? No, yeah. definitely not. Um, yeah. So, okay, and I, I'll, I'm guessing you were a very good student. You were, I was. I was yeah, that stereotypically you did your good student. Yeah. I, I want to say that I was the one who didn't care and still. Um, came out on top but I was the student who sat at the front of the class and like cried when I got bad grades Mm. I just I loved school and I loved learning Mm. um yeah so undergrad did you study biology I did I studied I got a double major in botany and environmental studies Uh so I wasn't always animal girl surprisingly um but that being said I wasn't one of those students in college anyway that really had that um, epiphany early on that I should um, continue with my love for biology or love for animals. I actually tried 
a few routes. I was going to be an international business major. I was, boring. I know. Well, I thought like, oh, I'll go back to Germany and Practical, find a way to boring. travel the world. Yeah. That was my other big thing. I really right. wanted to see places that were different from where I'd grown up. Do you speak German? I do. Yeah. Good. Yeah, ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch. Ich auch. Aber nur, nur ein bisschen. Yeah. Okay. And so, so you're you're starting to. Was it in undergrad that you started to take more of a systems? Like, I want to understand the interactions rather than just this one creature. Or is that something that's happening now? Because it sounds oh. like you're like you're look you're taking a holistic view of what's going on, right? The mm-hmm. interactions of disease and different species mm-hmm. and weather patterns and humidity yeah. and latitude and altitude and I mean <laughs> all these yeah. things go into it, right? It's yeah. it's an entire little world that uh, is interacting. Yeah. Um, so so let's say. We're, we're in undergrad right now. That's where we're at in my timeline. Um, I eventually came to my senses and went back to biology. Um, I was just always really good in those classes. And so how that happened was um, a trip to Ecuador. I studied abroad um, in Ecuador, and I was super fortunate to do a, um, uh, a study abroad program that was uh, – field biology-based, so we traveled all over the country and got to work in and study so many different ecosystems from Mm. high Andean, Paramo um, plant communities to the Galapagos. I was diving every day with with my fellow students and doing studies of underwater creatures, also in the rainforest, looking at the influence of tree diversity on... um, uh, like primate behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. So that experience really opened my eyes to what you could do with field research and just exploring all aspects of um, the ecological and biological interactions that um, shape um, communities or shape different environments. And so, um, yeah, I think that experience continued my passion for traveling and seeing new places and studying the interactions of species in other places and then also made me think what are all the different parts to these interactions and how is this like a holistic interaction right Um, which is a good segue to the second thing mm -hmm. you said the other night that got my piqued my curiosity which is that you had done research in madagascar yeah. And you're the second person in my entire life that I've met who's <laughs> been to Madagascar. And I've met a lot of people, yeah. a lot yeah, of travelers. I'm sure you have. Um, how did that fit in? How, how did you end up in Madagascar? Yeah, um, that's jumping a little bit ahead of the timeline with Hawaii and the Hawaiian birds. But I did, again, I, I wanted to see the world. And surprisingly, uh, studying rare animals, endangered species, field biology, is a great way to travel the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You can use that to work with animals or work in ecosystems in other countries. And um, so Madagascar, that experience came at a time in my life where I wasn't quite sure what my next steps would be, but I really wanted to go to grad school and um, and actually um, learn more about how to um, do great science. 
And there was a job application um, for working in Madagascar with this research project with a professor at the University of Florida. And um, we were meant to climb trees and do surveys of tropical herpetofauna. So that's frogs and chameleons, lizards, etc. pretty much um, any of those things. Uh, and survey their abundance distribution diversity in the canopies of Madagascar. And I was mm. like, oh my goodness, yes. One, he said... Like, you know, we would get to go to these incredible forests and do surveys, and I would get to um, see very cool creatures. And two, uh, this was a little bit of a trap, I have to say, in hindsight, but it has benefited me. Oh, you can publish a paper of the data that uh, we collect. And um, I thought, okay, well, if I want to get into grad school, I can do this amazing project and also be in Madagascar. Um, And it seemed just like... The stars had aligned on that. So. Mm. And I only say it was a trap with the paper publishing because there's always way more involved in that if you go that academic route um, than the traditional adventure seeker anticipates. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. you end up publishing? I did, yeah. It's my first, uh, first author paper. And then the only other thing that I would say, the story that's super interesting about Madagascar, um, I... Uh, I stayed in part because of that, um, one, it was a beautiful place, and two, that need to publish a paper, because literally I um, I got an infection in my hand that was so bad I needed surgery in Madagascar, and there was this point at which all the other researchers and and were asking me, why are you still here? Like, you should go home. You should heal back where you have family and support. Um, you know, why <laughs> Why are you putting yourself through this? And I was like, because I have to get this paper published. Mm. <laughs> Which is this, um, I'm really glad I did, not just because of the paper, but staying. I had some still incredible experiences, but I, I should show you some photos of the time. So I started climbing trees, and that was awesome. And I've kept up with that a little bit since in other um, uh, field jobs. But there's a there's like right around Christmas. So I was there over Christmas in Madagascar as well. And there's this point at which I had, after I had injured my hand, I actually got a form of MRSA in my hand. Um, and that was like a wild experience of having to like get brought to a hospital that was like a 20-hour drive away from this research station I was staying at. And, you know, we had to go at a certain time of day or night to avoid bandits. And I got my, you know, I got a personal driver to drive me because the research station was so, like, concerned that I wouldn't get to the hospital in time because of, like, the blood infection that was developing. And, um, yeah, it was just crazy. And then I, so I go and there's not, so healthcare in Madagascar is pretty poor. It's one of the like worst um, nations, unfortunately, in the world in terms of like access to, to quality healthcare for its own citizens. And so I, of course, as a privileged white European person with some travel health insurance was able to afford to go to a better hospital. But still, that was like, it, it was a church-run hospital and the previous hospital I'd gone to was legitimately like a dirt floor sort of operation where they had tried to lance my hand and clean it out and unfortunately that probably made it worse Mm. and then 
now I'm at this other hospital in the capital city, and and some Antonarivo. Yeah, Antonarivo. Nailed it. Yep. <laughs> and I'm going. I like my and my surgeon doesn't really have. He's not great with English, and we're actually communicating in Spanish because he's Argentinian. And and anyway, um, he's putting me under, and I had never been under anesthesia. Nobody in my life, besides my, you know, this the professor I was working for and my um, um, fellow researcher, knew where I was, what was happening to me. And I just remember going under, being like, I might never wake up from this, and nobody will know what like where I was or what happened. And so that experience, of, again, of saying, like, going to Madagascar was incredible and feeling like I needed to go for these very, like, weirdly professional, contrived reasons that I had to stay for that kind of stuff. Um, it seems so minimized when you're here in this moment being like, am I going to wake up from this? Like, yeah. was it was it all worth it in the end? Yeah. And yes, I think so. But uh, long story short, there's pictures after that experience where I was like, okay, I'm going back. Like, I'm, I can't, I wouldn't be able to face the shame, to be honest, and it would be total self-imposed shame, of going home. I was like, no, I'm going to wear a rubber glove around my hand for the rest of the, like, three months that we were meant to be out there. And, you know, I will just be the ground crew forever. Because you couldn't climb. Because I, I couldn't climb. I did get an incredible climb at the very, very end. But Were you climbing with ropes and harnesses or climbing? Yeah, ropes and harnesses. We would shoot um, ropes up into the trees um, with this, like, giant slingshot, essentially. And, yeah, you'd rig up the rope in a, in a various fashion that would allow you to climb vertically. And then you'd swing to branches where you'd see um, frogs or How high chameleons. up were you? Uh, I mean, I think our tallest tree was almost a hundred feet tall that we had, um, surveyed. So, um, yeah, anywhere between zero to a hundred feet in the air. Crazy experience. Yeah. How long were you on Madagascar? Five months. Do you say on or in Madagascar? It's an island, but it's a country. Yeah. In Madagascar. Yeah, in Madagascar. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's wild. Yeah, and then we traveled around after that research experience. and um, So that was before you were in grad school. That was all just to get into grad school. Maybe, okay, that's how I've, I've pitched it. But I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm not old, but um, I did. <laughs> I <laughs> am, and I resemble that. I remark. did like eight years between my undergrad and grad school. Ah. So um, I, I did 20, so well, there. Very cool. Oh, you beat me. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I just, I did a bunch of other cool experiences. I was in, um, New Zealand for a while. I worked with, um, some of their endangered birds. Um, that was super cool. I'd like to think that I have been trailing Douglas Adams, who did, um, this really cool, uh, program called Last Chance to See, Mm. where he was following around researchers studying a bunch of the, uh, world's most, or the rarest and sort of iconic species and one of those is the kakapo in uh, New Zealand and I was around at the right time and place when the kakapo which is this like giant flightless night parrot similar to Hawaii New Zealand um, was a uh, is an is a set of islands that just had for the most part bird species on them so New Zealand has some like frog or has Excuse geckos me. and a few a few reptiles, but the Hawaiian Islands, for the most part, 
just birds filled right. the ecological niches. Um, okay, birds and like snails and uh, one bat species mammal. But if, you know, the main ecological um, players were birds. And so, yeah, I, I was there in New Zealand when um, the this tree that fruits that is very closely tied to kakapo breeding was fruiting and they were having a big breeding year for the kakapo and there's only at the time there was only around a hundred individuals left and Mm. they were all on these super remote islands um off of the two kind of main new zealand islands and um i i contacted the department of conservation when i arrived in new zealand and said, hey, I, I've worked with endangered Hawaiian birds. If you need any on-the-ground help working with kakapo, I'm here for this many months. Contact me. And um, at first they didn't contact me because I'm sure they get plenty of emails. But later I got a ring, and it wasn't to be the biologist necessarily to help their incredible team of rangers. It was to be a cook on one of the islands in mm. the fjords of the South Island. And um, they said, yeah, we need someone to cook for the crew while they're chasing these kakapo all over the island and monitoring their reproductive activities. And I said, yep, I can cook, (laughs) which is true. I can cook and I like cooking, but I had never cooked for like 20 people. But, you know, you just say whatever you need to say to get onto the island. And uh, so they took me on. They flew me out in a helicopter over the, like, southern alps and i landed at this small little island and began again like a very wild and very cool experience Mm. um tracking their their kakapo they they you know i cooked for them but then they said well you know what why don't you just stay on and help us right we'll also maybe get someone else to help with the cooking (laughs) yeah once they got to know you then yeah yeah it's way different than an email yeah that's awesome yeah that's yeah, great. so I did New Zealand, um, Madagascar, various trips now back and forth um, in the Hawaiian Islands. I've been to other countries, but not necessarily doing endangered species research. Um, you ever see a movie called Encounters at the End of the World? Mm-mm. Werner Herzog. Oh, I, I, yeah, I know the director, but I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, he's awesome. He, uh, it's a movie about um, Antarctica. Mm. And at the beginning of the the documentary, he says some foundation gave him a million dollars or something to mm-hmm. make a movie about Antarctica. And he said, I accepted the money, you know, in his accent. Um, but I told them I would not make another movie about the fucking penguins. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he basically, like half of the movie is about... Um, it's McMurdle, I think, is the McMurdo station. McMurdo Station. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's about, like, the, the different scientists and what they're studying, you know, and, the, and he goes under uh, the ice. Mm-hmm. And, and there are these people down there studying the creatures that live under the mm-hmm. ice on the ocean floor. And it's just incredible footage. But the other half is about the kind of misfit adventurers who are the support crew there. Yeah. Like the guy who fixes the trucks and the guy who runs the greenhouse and, you know, just in, the guy who runs the greenhouse was definitely high. Like there's <laughs> no way that guy was not growing weed in that greenhouse. But, you know, it's all very discreet. You know, they're not going to mention that. But, yeah. 
Um, but it's such an interesting thing because it's it, it's like the ecology of a place includes the people who end up going there to study and live there. Yeah. You know, it's like it attracts a certain just like it attracts a certain certain species of birds or slugs or whatever. Yeah. It attracts certain types of people. You know, yeah, not right. everybody ends up you know, flying over the fjords in southern New Zealand to <laughs> study the kakapo. Yeah. Or stays in Madagascar. Right, uh, climbing trees <laughs> climbing at night. Trees like, at are night. you fucking kidding me? I saw a fusa, by the way. I don't know if you... What's a fusa? It's this uh, um, predator, like, I'm trying to remember if they're more closely related to cats or, like, weasels, but they're mm. essentially the um, predatory mammal. Uh, in Madagascar that eats lemurs, climbs trees. They kind of look like a cross, honestly, between a weasel and a cat. Um, and <sighs> Must be agile as all get <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So they're nocturnal predators. Um, mm. They're not that big, but uh, if you ever see the ma- the movie Madagascar, they have this way of talking. The fusa. Oh, okay. Can I just get this little bit of... <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed a woman... Uh, strangely you may be connected to her in some way uh because her husband johan a german dude runs or ran i don't know if he still has it but a company in the um, galapagos helping university students connect to the local people like Mm. he sets them up with homestays Mm -hmm. and diving trips and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So you may have actually crossed paths with Johan yeah, or his company. Um, but she studied um, coral reefs. And her doctoral research was about trying to develop ways to make coral reefs more resilient to climate change. Mm. And uh, I guess by, you know, selective... Ed- breeding of coral uh i forget what they're called but the organism polyps polyps, yeah um you know that have greater resistance to i don't know if it's ph changes and temperature changes Mm -hmm. and what have you um but it was a very she's a friend of mine uh you know so we had a personal connection as well but there was i remember it being a difficult conversation because there was a point where i said to her how do you deal with the sadness? Mm. And she just started crying. It was, mm. you know, because she was holding it back. The whole time we're talking about, you know, you mentioned that TV show, like, see them while they last. Last chance or, to see. Last chance to see. Like, there's something deeply, there's a grieving in that. And you're choosing to focus on... Like, we're all vaguely aware to one extent or another Mm -hmm. that we live in the end times of many Mm -hmm. worlds and many species. It's an extinction event. Mm -hmm. But you've actually chosen to focus on that. How how do you deal with that on a psychological, emotional level? Mm. Yeah. Um, Well, we should just briefly then return to the... Hawaiian bird system um, because in particular I have held and worked with birds that are very likely to go extinct I want to say my lifetime but honestly in the next 10 to 20 years and that experience is not unique to me the generation right before me literally caught one of the last this bird called the po'o'uli 
on um, the island of Maui that's now officially recognized as extinct, but um, that in the, like, 90s they were finding the po'o'uli and they only found really three individuals and that, that the crew of people who are working on this effort to what they saw as hopefully save the po'o'uli um, ultimately had to grapple with the reality that they were going to see the last individuals. And, um, and some of them, honestly, after that, afterwards left conservation completely they couldn't yeah. they couldn't deal and that is a i think an inappropriate response um it, the the just grappling with that you've put so much time emotionally physically and i mean the hawaiian rainforest everybody's like oh hawaii suns like beaches it must be nice all the time the hawaiian rainforest is rains almost every day it's at elevation cold so you're mm. cold and wet every day. Mm. And you were, we were, um, well, this previous team was spending weeks on end. I, when I worked in the rainforest there, was also spending, you know, sometimes 10 to 14 days. You're in these little tents in the middle of the rainforest. Sometimes there's only helicopter access in and out. So there's no escaping. There's no cell service. You maybe are just with one other person. And, um, yeah. It's hard not to think about how the activities you're doing are maybe futile. Like in the greater scheme of things, those birds are going extinct not because you um, there's anything you personally can do. It's these larger patterns. It's climate change, It's the which are changing where mosquitoes and avian malaria are distributed. It's the cats, the rats, all of these invasive species that are eating their eggs. Um, that are reducing the numbers of these creatures such that, like, you spent now, what, potentially a year for some people, five years, ten years, your whole life working to save this creature, and it might all be for nothing. Um, so for some folks, the response is they get out of it to deal with the, um, the reality of that sort of grief and then for the rest of us, I think it's, it's almost this, I've, men- I've heard you mention this sometimes, it's like a doubling down on if I'm going to pursue this life and if I, I actually almost feel like I take this meaning from it in terms of if I'm going to pursue this life, I'm going to do it as deeply and as committedly as possible. And even if in the end it doesn't matter that I, that, I was part of it or that my work changed the trajectory of the of this species survival it seems like a pretty good thing to devote like your time and energy what is like trying to find the better words for it like if I need a meaning in life if I needed to say like what was the point of Krista's life on this planet it would be that I tried to make a difference in in the conservation world that I tried to like do something that seemed bigger than myself in a way that I could put my energy even if it was all for nothing I feel like every day waking up and and having a purpose beyond myself I I I don't want to at all minimize other folks's struggles with finding purpose in their life but honestly like I don't struggle with that in the same way because I just use this as an excuse sometimes to define like what gets me up in 
in the morning. Like, okay, well, every day I'm going to work a little bit harder towards this end goal. And, okay, the birds go extinct. That's okay. I'm sure that along that process I did something else good for the planet. I did something else that was um, meaningful. And so I don't know how how um, that resonates with other people. But um, that's how I've dealt with the reality and the like impending grief that I know is coming. So right now I'm wearing this shirt for the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. And um, it's the first project I worked for um, in Hawaii when I went in 2012. And our goal was to study this um, bird species called the kiwiku, which is um, English common name is the Maui parrotbill. Uh, scientific name Pseudonestors xanthrophries and at the time we thought there were only 500 of them left and we just were trying to study as much as we could about where they were in in Maui what their distribution was um, how many there were because 500 was this like we think so we have no idea what the actual numbers are Mm. and and I was also involved in an effort at the time to build a new natural area reserve on another side of the island that they had historically been found on but have recently been extirpated and we were going to introduce them to this new reserve and Mm. the idea was like okay if we expand their habitat they might have a better chance of evolving adaptations to of resistance to avian malaria or we maybe can just increase the population so that they'll be um, less threatened. And so I was from I was involved in the making of this natural area reserve, uh, Nakula Natural Area Reserve, before the fence was even up. I mean, I w- we planted thousands of trees. I personally planted thousands of trees on the on this degraded hillside on the leeward side of Maui, in in the hopes of creating and reforesting habitat for this bird species. And it, oh my goodness, you know how like fulfilling that was mm. to like start. And be part of the starting of a natural area reserve, and just, and just planting trees. The act of planting trees makes it almost feel like you're giving life. Yeah. And then yeah, again, this hope was like, okay, in five years, etc., we will we will bring birds from the wet side of the island where I was previously working to this new habitat, and we you know we'll study them and and watch them flourish. Um, and so that is still, I think, a very admirable goal. It's just that. In the last two years, um, the translocation actually happened. They caught birds on the um, wet side and they brought them to the dry side. And I wasn't involved in the physical translocation this time around, but I stay in very good touch with the people in the organization. They're kind of like my scientific family. And and um, and the the birds, there was a, I can't remember, 15 um they were brought over, and and so we had been waiting for this day, like, right, for years. And for, for me, personally, for years, but then, you know, there's people involved with the project. This has been, like, a decades in the making. Yeah. Every single one of those birds died from avian malaria. And there shouldn't, I mean, there, quote, unquote, shouldn't have been malaria in the reserve. It was built above where we thought malaria could reach. Um, we didn't think there were that many mosquitoes there. And, um, yeah, and all the birds had radio trackers on them. So for the most part, we know the fate of every single bird. And so that setback is one of those examples of, like, 
a great chunk of my so far young career has been defined by Hawaiian birds, working for Hawaiian bird recovery projects, getting involved in this translocation, and then this like sort of epic failure. Um, And I think the only, for me, the only response is just to keep moving forward. Okay, this is a setback. Like we just got to keep trying to do the next best thing. Um, And that currently has been decided that they're going to bring the KiwiQ, a number of them, into captivity. Um, Right. Yeah. Do you ever think that, you know, stepping way back, just like death is part of life unavoidably, is extinction part of, Mm -hmm. is there a sense in which species are meant to go extinct? And we're, by struggling against it, we're like actually just dealing with our species level shame uh, for having caused it in some ways or, um, you know, how do you, Mm. where do you locate humanity, I guess, is, is the broader (laughs) question within the natural world. Or do you see us as part of the natural world in the sense that I, sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll be like, no, Chris, you don't get it. Like plastic is supposed to exist Mm. because we do. And so it's all part of the the larger picture. We are part of the natural world. Therefore, anything we do is part of nature. Therefore, there is no conflict, which to mm. me sounds like a lot of like psychological whitewashing. But I don't know. <laughs> how, how do you deal with that question? Are we are we somehow separate and in opposition to nature Mm. And your work is trying to address that, or are we part of nature and your work is embedded in that? Or how do you Mm. think about that? Mm. And you can pass. You can just say, pass. (laughs) (laughs) No, these are are the questions I think we all grapple with. Um, And I personally don't see humans as being separate from nature. Um, where I believe we shouldn't be. And in sharing these stories and my experiences that I have, I think one of my biggest goals is to inspire and communicate the value of biodiversity and conservation and um, having a relationship with nature to other people so that like they too can see their place in the ecological world, that they might be inspired to get involved, that they might want to I mean it's just as simple as like until this point potentially a listener didn't pay much attention to a bird outside their window and then if just hearing that there's someone like me who's so caring and compassionate about that creature that they're like oh okay cool that was a house finch now suddenly now that you have the lens or the just recognition of something it it once it gets a name right it becomes something more to you. And you start noticing it much more. And you start noticing it yeah. much more. Like, you know, everybody in their, especially their older parents, love texting me about the birds at their feeder. And that, and I think that's a beautiful relationship that some people um, cultivate, is starting to just notice these small patterns. And so, yeah, I don't think we're separate, or I don't think we should be. I think some parts of the society that we've created try to make these artificial separations whether that be historically in our language 
um, or our religion or the formation of our cities. So this isn't quite my background in the same way that it is yours. But, you know, I think there has been actually a long history of humans because somehow we evolved these highly complex brains that tell ourselves stories that can create worlds outside of our physical selves. So that being, you know, religion and, um, you know, writing books about fantasy worlds, like these things that don't exist that to this point, we don't have strong evidence that other creatures can really do that sort of thinking. Um, that we've decided that makes us that kind of like, in my opinion, evolutionary like quirk <laughs> makes us that's better than maybe the other adaptations or cool things that other animals or species or, you know, et cetera, have de developed. I don't necessarily think we're separate. And so, again, the I guess how do I grapple with plastic though? It's like, okay, I don't see people as separate from nature and I want us just to have a, like a greater appreciation for how we interact with other species. But maybe the answer is like, well, not everything that a, a species does or, or creates is necessarily good in terms of how it interacts with others. And so um, creating plastic <laughs> helps us isn't necessarily beneficial to other creatures and and i think maybe the burden lies on us as a cognizant species that is embedded and part of the natural world to just think about our actions and think about gosh that sounds so simplistic but like we have the ability to change our behavior in ways that other things don't have and um just because we've created it doesn't mean we need to continue to use it. Just because we've done a certain action doesn't mean that that has to define us forever. Um. Yeah, we're, we're capable of directing our own evolution in a way that other animals aren't, at least not yeah. with any conscious intent. Yeah, it's, yeah, this is a deep question. I'm trying to see where to take it next. But yeah, that's the point. Like, We have this power, and that is unique to our knowledge and I don't see why we don't use it to be better beneficially better species citizens um, yeah uh, of this planet I don't know why we have to use it only for our own selfish ends right yeah what is the responsibility that comes with consciousness you know there's always that we seem we're assuming that at least consciousness as we uh, experience it with, as you said, mm -hmm. narrative and, you know, creation of imaginary worlds and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it used to be that scientists thought human consciousness was like we were the only truly conscious animal or whatever. Uh, we're seeing consciousness expressed in many animals mm -hmm. in many different ways, even in plants. Oh my gosh, the worldwide or the wood wide web. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot going on, but I think we can agree that there is something unique about human consciousness. Yeah. I agree with that. And with that unique power and and perception comes responsibility. With as you said. With great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um I've been tempted to end this conversation, uh, the recorded part of it, uh, several times because you are so articulate and you would go off on a beautiful riff. <laughs> and I was like, 
press stop just stop right there that's so good that's so good um but i'm glad i let it roll a little longer because you kept coming up with better ones you're very very articulate are you gonna teach is that your ultimate goal or be a tv host or like what's <laughs> where where are there you going is an article written about me that is not going to come to fruition but uh a previous mentor of, of mine called me a the next David Attenborough, and that was a dream of mine as a child. That's obviously putting myself on a pedestal that I don't think I've deserved yet. But and you um, have to live to be a hundred. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's becoming. He's been at it a while. It's becoming easier with time. Um, <laughs> modern healthcare. But do you want to be a, like a science communicator? Or I would, is that... Yeah, I would love to continue to be a science communicator uh, and work for a conservation organization. Part of the reason I got a PhD again, I. I so silly that I focus so much on this like pursuit of academia was um, to get the credentials and the frame of mind and the skills and the ability to direct conservation research projects mm. and really be a proficient um, a, a proficient researcher to create good research to inform management and so ideally mm. I would love to end up as a um, like the lead scientist on a project, right? Um, a, a big project. I would even work um, for not only just NGOs, but for different government and um, non-government uh, institutions. And um, but yeah, if that you know if that doesn't work out, if that like very sort of mundane day job doesn't pay my bills, I'm not really a conventional person. I don't really care if I have a house or a property somewhere that's mine I would just like to do good things in the world so um I would love to end up as a science communicator start a damn podcast (laughs) yeah maybe I just need to start a podcast where are you in your studies now have you finished the PhD I'm close close I'm defending my proposal very soon and there's just a couple years after that um two years and then yeah I'll move on to the next thing um, very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. I very much appreciate it. Do you have a website or something where people can see what you're up to? <laughs> Do you have that kind of a presence in the world? Or I, actually, that's what's going to make the communicator thing a bit of a challenge. I, for various reasons right now, to help me just focus on my work, I don't currently have a... No social media. Good for honestly, you. Honestly, I don't really have social media. Right. Um well, if someone, if someone has, like, the dream job for you, they can just write to me and I'll pass it along? <laughs> Is that the way this... No, I mean, I do have a, a an email address. I don't know if you that, want to give that out. Um, it's up to you. They but... could contact. Right. Um, no, I'm happy to give it out. So it's my last name, Seidel. So that's S for Sam, E for Edward, I for Igloo, D for Dog, L for Lewis, uh, C, like cat, M, like mouse, at gmail.com um yeah i mean i in two years i'll be looking for some great opportunities to do uh more conservation based research and yeah i'd love to also connect with other people who are interested in the same and who might particularly want to focus on different endangered species um across the world cool all right. Well, thank you for doing this. this yeah, thank great. you. It was great. I'm glad I went uh, and met up for that for the meetup. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I poached you from Kyle. Ah, his loss. <laughs> 
I hope you enjoyed that episode of Tangentially Speaking. If you did, if this podcast brings value to your life, I hope you'll consider supporting it financially, either through my website, tangentiallyspeaking.com, where you can make a one-time donation or sign up for a monthly subscription as low as five bucks a month, which gets you access to all the eBooks and uh, video Roma that I record pretty much every month if people ask me questions. Uh, and other bonus materials. Um, And also keep in mind that this is one of the only podcasts that you listen to, I would bet, that doesn't have commercials almost all the time. Very rarely do I use commercials. And I never just accept commercials from a commercial broker or someone. You know, I get emails all the time, people saying, let me monetize your podcast. No, thanks. So if you enjoy this podcast, if it brings value to you, I hope you'll consider supporting it financially. The introductory music is called Bright Side of the Sun. It's by Basin and Range. And now I will turn you over to my mom and the great Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day Baby, what's a big deal if you want to be free? 
say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 